listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Sometime last year, I was asked this question in an interview. How do you define grief? After an internal, oof, how am I going to answer that? I went on to say that for me, Grief is everything we think and feel and experience in reaction to loss, any type of loss, and that loss can occur anytime a change happens. I know, super general to cover all the bases, but it's kind of true. On this show, we primarily talk about the grief that comes when someone is diagnosed with an advanced serious illness or has had someone in their life die. This kind of grief is relevant for today's guest, Tita Beatty but she also spends her days thinking about the impact of a different type of grief, cultural bereavement. Cultural bereavement is a term coined by Dr. Maurice Eisenbrook in 1991, and it's defined as the experience of an uprooted person or a group related to the loss of social structures, cultural values, and identity. In other words, everything people think and feel and experience in missing a home and a homeland they needed to leave sometimes by choice, sometimes by force, sometimes out of necessity, and most often a combination of those three. Tita Beatty is a Thai-American end-of-life doula, grief support facilitator, and immigrant advocate. She's also the co-founder of MISO, an organization created to support caregiving and grief with compassion and a cultural lens. Tita's commitment to supporting immigrant families before and after a death comes from her personal experience of being a long-distance caregiver for her parents and a bereaved and overwhelmed daughter after they died. Tita went in search of support and discovered, as so many do, that the offerings were not culturally specific or even relevant. To quote Tita here, she writes, I was forced to contend with the dearth of support for immigrants in the U.S. around care, death, loss, and grief, and have now decided to do something about that. In our conversation, Tita shares the work she's doing to do something about that, ensuring that other immigrant families and their next generations have the support they need both before and after a death. Tita, thank you for coming on Grief Out Loud today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I know you and I were in a webinary thing uh, last year, but we didn't get to talk directly to each other, so I'm really looking forward to that. Oh my, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, tell us a little bit about your parents. Like, what role did their experience as immigrants play in how they parented you? Yeah, my parents, they came from Thailand uh, in the mid-60s to late 60s. Uh, they emigrated here to America as a result of the Heart Seller Act of 1965. Um, and my father was actually part of a program through the U.S. government because there was a brain drain here in the country, in the United States, of medical professionals. He was brought over on that program. uh, And my parents actually met in the States, in Washington, D.C. 
got married and then they had me uh, and then my brother. Their experience as immigrants, it's not necessarily an unusual one, but it's not not that common as well. At the time when they came, immigrants from Thailand, I looked it up, there were like 200 immigrants from Thailand in 1965. The number of people coming out of Thailand and then immigrating to a country like this, uh, which is just geographically so much larger than a country like Thailand, it was a real shift. And because of just the low numbers, they themselves at that time just didn't have really any community or any touch points. So as our own nuclear family, we were really it, like on an island, like let's say, and that our resources were really just the four of us. So in terms of their experience as immigrants, part of it was born just, you know, naturally out of these circumstances uh, where they were isolated. They had to rely on themselves. So therefore, they just were very, already very independent. Um, that was already clear in terms of their, their decisions to come here. Self-determined, self-reliant and driven, uh, driven naturally as well as driven out of necessity. In terms of those components of the immigrant experience, their immigrant experience, that showed up certainly in our family. In terms of like how we may have been parented, I, that's a great question because I feel like if there was anything, it was really more perhaps like benign neglect <laughs> um, in the sense that, you know, they were so busy. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, and again, without having, you know, just kind of this notion of like community support of perhaps other Thai people, the closest community was about uh, in, in down in Washington, D.C., was an hour away. So it was not easily accessible. You know, I think it was it was really a challenge for them to try to figure out, like, how are we going to make this work, make this work in this country? You know, we've got like these two kids. And we've, you know, we've, we've just got to like pull it all together because there is no safety net. But because what we saw in terms of just, uh, you know, the values reflected in our house of like independent self-reliant uh, drive, that those were things I think that if there was like parenting by example, that's what we took away. Now, there's the, another component to that in terms of this notion of like cultural bereavement. So my parents, and, and I believe that like immigrants, refugees, asylees, anyone with that kind of migration story, leaving, you know, a country, their home to, to go to another one voluntarily or displacement or, or, you know, whatever the reasons, uh, there's this cultural bereavement that comes with that in terms of loss of country, you know, loss of family in that country coming to a host country that may not necessarily be so friendly. Uh, depending on, you know, the circumstances, loss of, you know, primary language, uh, food, traditions, practices, observations, and even again, just a lack of understanding, perhaps, of like host countries culture, you know, the drive for any individual to, to belong, you know, is, is strong, of course. And so, uh, you know, the effects of assimilation, um, I think we're, you know, we're magnified. All of that was magnified, I think, for them also because they didn't have community around them to to process 
you know, a lot of what they were experiencing to be both mirrors as well as windows for them into their experiences. Much of our experience was also clouded by this cultural bereavement, which, you know, is, is a kind of disenfranchised grief, which, I mean, certainly wasn't talked about. I mean, it's not talked about now. It was certainly not talked about then. Also, like, silence silence in our house of, you know, some really big things that perhaps they really just couldn't speak to. Maybe they wanted to, you know, I don't know, but they didn't. So I, I think that that was, yeah, that, that laid the foundation for that in our house. Your description of your parents, like coming from Thailand to the U.S., and then the finding each other, but then really being just the four of you, like not having any community nearby who could reflect or engage with that experience of being an immigrant. And I was just thinking like non-death loss, non like loss, so much loss. So you're, you're being raised by parents who are surrounded by that experience of loss, but that that loss was not you or your brother's first person experience of loss either. Yeah. And how, how lonely that can be when you are in a place where there's no opportunity to put grief into words and have those words reflected back to you by other people who on some level can relate to what you're going through. Yeah, very, very lonely. Very lonely. And so you grow up, go out into the world, living your life, and then your parents come towards the end of their lives and you move into this role of being a caregiver and you're a long distance caregiver. And just wondering if you could talk a bit about that experience and and also thinking like you talked about your parents being so self-determined and so independent. And what is it like? What was it like for them to move into this role of being more dependent on needing care? Yeah, again, you know, I, I just really appreciate that question. And I'm, I'm really glad that we're talking about this, because in terms of uh, caregiving, particularly caregiving that is having to occur, um, I think, within younger and younger demographics. You know, whether it could actually be um, younger folks who may be providing care to grandparents or but I, I think that it's it's becoming it's it's affecting younger and younger ages. For me, I did. I, I became a long distance caregiver, which certainly has, you know, a number of challenges of not only being separated by distance, but that like that, as well as, you know, just time zone and, and things like these kinds of like logistical things that actually have like a greater compounded effect in terms of, you know, how to actually be um, effective um, or have like any impact at all. My brother, he, he was closer uh, in terms of being a caregiver to my parents because he at least was on the same coast. For me, there was just, I think, a lot of like worry general anxiety, as well as, you know, unfortunately, guilt, guilt that I'm not closer, that I, I want to do more, but there's just, there's limitations to that. And I think that in terms of my parents, you know, you hear this so often, like, I don't want to be a burden. I hate that phrase. Like they didn't want to be a burden. Combining that, that sentiment, you know, that practice, as well as the silence, I would say like the, the habit of silence that had grown over time and again had a compounded effect 
you know, by the time that they were older and needing care, needing to be in a different situation, that like it was, um, yeah, like like a situation that was like just fraught with so much vulnerability. So getting back to that characteristic of just independence, and when I think of my parents, like they were, it was almost, they had a quality of like relentlessness to them. That certainly showed up, you know, in their drive, in that self-reliance, but also in this independence to the point where there were certainly situations during the course of their lives where, you know, again, there was no safety net. There was no place to turn to for help. But I also believe that that, you know, cemented in them that notion of like, there is no help. I can't ask for help. Or, you know, if I ask for help, it's not coming and, and perhaps I don't want to be disappointed that way. But there's there's no help. So even as my brother and I, you know, we were trying trying to set things up for them and whatnot, there's no, they weren't going to have any of it. And that also became really, really hard. And so setting things up like services or appointments or other elements of caregiving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, logistical support. Um, that certainly would have eased our minds. And quite frankly, I, I do believe, you know, would have uh, made some things easier for my parents. And this is this is just kind of one example that my father had actually had to have tri- like an emergency triple bypass. So when he was finally able to go home, he just needed some help with like some general wound care. He was a physician. I mean, he knew how to take care of some of these things. But we also just wanted people to come in like a like, you know, a nurse um, to just like help and, and just kind of keep an eye on things and just be a resource. I think that they allowed her in there for one day. And then after that, no, absolutely not. <laughs> and, you know, again, from a distance, like. Oh, (laughs) okay, mom and dad. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I hadn't thought about that idea that the, you know, the phrase, I don't want to be a burden actually is a little bit of code for, I don't want to accept any help, which ends up creating actually more burden for the people who are in your family, who are charged with trying to support you in some way. Yeah, for sure. That 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 was very much a theme. <laughs> yeah, toward the ends of their lives, absolutely. And so, as your parents reach the end of their lives, you've I really appreciated the wording you use when you describe moving from being a long distance caregiver to a uh, overwhelmed and under resourced daughter, navigating some pretty you know racist and oppressive systems. And I wonder if you could give a little more voice to that concept. Yeah. It wasn't really something that really came home to roost, I would say, um, until I really saw this unfolding. Even though I was aware of, you know, again, like their status as immigrants, um, as well as just quite frankly, like, you know, the, the way that they physically appeared. I mean, they're Asian. Um, and, and where they lived was really just, Again, circumstantial, just because getting back to when my father, uh, when, when he came here, the program that he came on was, was like an exchange. And so in exchange for his edu- completing his education here, it was sort of like an AmeriCorps. He would have been assigned to uh, a place that needed medical professional and 
where he was assigned is where they ended up spending the rest of their lives. And it was always just a, like a, a very rural part of Maryland. Between that kind of immigrant status, as well as, you know, their just their presentation, they were always just very easily identified as you're an outsider. You're not one of us. You know, you don't belong here. You have an accent. So they were just constantly othered. And how do I know that? And there were some times when I, you know, I, I absolutely witnessed that firsthand as well as growing up where I grew up with them. You know, I, I experienced the same things, but, you know, as a child. In terms of, um, you know, seeing through lines of that into their death, it was challenging in the sense that my parents, they, they had, they did not want to be institutionalized. They really wanted to be in their home. Um, and so we really tried to honor that. But in terms of, you know, trying to find like people who, again, if, if they would have had people, and I think that if we've been able to find more folks who could have been a familiar, like representation, that that may have eased the way. Um, but that wasn't going, that, that wasn't available. I think that once people came to understand that my father himself was a doctor, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, then your accent doesn't matter. Okay. Now I can talk to you as a professional. You know, whereas with my mom, it was very much, okay, do you understand? My mother, I mean, she, she spoke perfect English. So just, you know, othering, othering in, in those sometimes microaggressive ways and sometimes those just absolutely flat out racist ways. And then what did you, after your parents died, what were the supports and the resources that you needed that you weren't finding? Yeah, they they died five weeks apart and in very, very different ways. It was such an intense experience that even though I had not really had any experience with like that kind of grief prior, you know, had certainly had losses over the course of my life, but not anything like that. And so I had an inkling at that point that the experience of, of being witnessed, being at the bedside and, and, and all of it was just, it was so intense that whatever was going to emerge for me in terms of bereavement would more than likely match that intensity. Um, so that's kind of what I was like girding myself for, but man, <laughs> there's no way to know. Um, but I just, at the time, I, I remember like really like kind of sitting with myself um in the aftermath of it all, when I was finally able to return home and just really like commanding myself, just let it be with you. Whatever's coming, don't push it away. Let it just run its course. See what happens. Now with that, it's like, okay, I can be okay with that. And I'm going to try and find resources. So, you know, as we do now, like got onto Google Search for all kinds of things, like located every single like in-person grief support group that I could find. And, and this was before COVID had happened. So that was still, you know, accessible. I found a lot of resources, but what I also found in trying to just to participate was that at least in terms of in-person spaces, many of the spaces that I encountered, like I was really, I was the only Asian person in the room. And that's been an experience that's just kind of been a common through line of my life anyway. But I was so disheartened when, you know, like now it's, it's like, if this is a vulnerable time, 
Like, this is not the time when I can really be navigating, like, reading the room, trying to figure out, like, who I need to be in this room, because I just didn't have the internal resources, nor the desire, you know, to actually show up in any way outside of, I am in a world of hurt. I still try, I still tried it out. But then I, I also realized that it wasn't even just about, like, let's say, you know, representation, and again, like, finding mirrors and windows and connections to my experience. Like there, there was some level of perhaps, I don't know, sympathy in terms of, oh, you lost your parents. But like the other things about, it wasn't just that, like I, I felt untethered and like unmoored in this world because my foundation, you know, was now gone and untethered in the sense of, I have no connection now to their country. I have no connection, you know, outside of just has been like my experience, my memories with them, you know, to the foods anymore, to language, to those aspects of memory. You know, even though the dynamic um, growing up in terms of, you know, being isolated, it is just the four of us, that kind of stuff. There was no understanding, um, you know, from like an immigrant viewpoint, why that might arise, what that can feel like. There's not recognition of that kind of grief generally in society. You know, there was just limited opportunity for compassion. That's now an aspect, I think, of my own, like, cultural bereavement. You know, now having lost my parents and just realizing that there had been just a void, you know, of resources to perhaps inform about grief, help with grief somehow, with uh, any kind of cultural, cultural sensitivity. And that experience is what led you into the realm of starting MESO, the organization that you co-founded. Yeah, tell us a bit about MESO and the goal of that organization is now. Yeah, thank you. I am a co-founder of MESO and my partner, um, Soyeon Davis. We are trained end-of-life doulas as well as peer grief support facilitators, uh, I describe myself as an American-born daughter of Thai immigrants. And so Yun, she actually, she emigrated here from Korea when she was five years old. So she likes to say she was born in Korea, made in, like, raised in America. After my parents died, we were talking, and there were things that were going on with her parents just in terms of needing more care. Between the two of us, we had these experiences that were already leading us toward engaging with care and end-of-life issues, and that indiv- individually and independently, we had already come to a decision to pursue end-of-life doula training. So when we came together and found these connections, we thought, well, wow, you know, why don't we just kind of embark upon this adventure together to a degree and see where we land? That was about, yeah, that was like the spring of 2020 when we were just, you know, horrified, like as with like the rest of the country with the killing of George Floyd and saw how that was maybe like a renaissance of a social justice movement. We we saw something in that that kind of really lit a fire for us uh, in terms of being dissatisfied with our attempts to search for, as well as really like hope for, you know, resources for care 
uh, for end of life, for grief, through a cultural lens that could speak to just daughters of immigrants, to immigrant families, to their caregivers, to their grievers. And so that's when we just decided, okay, you know, let's really, let's really do this. Let's be the change that, you know, we want to see. Let's create what we, what we needed. And let's really try and, and do that for immigrant communities because there are, you know, there are common experiences just around the immigrant experience. But because we are both Asian, uh, we emphasize Asians in America. Our goal with it really came out of, again, examining, like, what is it that we, you know, both really needed? And so through a cultural lens, what we aim to provide is meaningful, relevant information, because it allows whomever is searching for that perhaps to build as well as to increase, like expand their external as well as their internal capacity so that they might be able to be more in the moment of whatever's happening, so that they might have either expectations or, you know, some level of knowledge of what is unfolding in front of them, uh, as well as to provide uh, just like open, non-judgmental, compassionate support to immigrant families, immigrant communities. That was going to be my next question of my understanding is the audience that you serve, not really the audience, but the, the folks that you serve are people who are needing support around end-of-life care. Are you also supporting people who work in those fields to have a better understanding of like how to approach these kinds of conversations and these services? Uh, Yeah. I mean, for us, you know, we understand that education needed all around for whomever, you know, happens to, to come our way, whether it's, you know, a family or whether it's, yeah, someone who's a practitioner or whatnot. Um, we absolutely support, you know, all of that. Um, again, you know, like our focus is on immigrant communities. So particularly, uh, you know, practitioners who are either, you know, of immigrant families themselves or people of color. We just recognize that there's just different components to those experiences that we just didn't necessarily find in the grief resources, in in whatever kind of resources we were first searching for, because it was really through just like one lens, Mm. you know, a dominant culture lens. Understanding that education, as well as building ecosystems, you know, building networks, um, so that we can, you know, share our own experiences, as well as connect to each other for both like professional, personal development, you know, referral, that kind of thing, but that there's not enough of it. We, we need to be in concert with each other. One of the services that you provide is supporting children, cousins, family members, and having end-of-life conversations with their immigrant parents and grandparents. And I wondered, could you share a little of, I mean, you've, you've talked about this a bit, but like, are there things that you think about that make that conversation unique or uniquely challenging? Yeah, you know, I think that I should probably just go ahead and like back up a little bit and just um, talk a little bit more about cultural bereavement, because it is, again, something that's not, it, it's really just not talked about. It is a disenfranchised grief um, and a disenfranchised grief being one that's not recognized, supported, acknowledged, or really spoken to by larger society. And then cultural bereavement itself. It was a term coined in 1991 
by a researcher, I think he's Australian, Dr. Maurice Eisenbrook. He was doing work with Cambodian refugees and interviewing them. And from that body of work, he coined and defined cultural bereavement. It's basically like the experience of an uprooted individual or a group that results from loss of social structures, cultural values, or markers of self-identity, like language, attitudes, values, social structures, support networks. In terms of cultural bereavement, and, and I know I've said this, but I, I believe that all immigrants, refugees, asylees, again, folks with that kind of like migration experience, they, they encounter various aspects of cultural bereavement. What, like what I had seen in my own family where for people who are primarily going through this to not have any name for it, to not have any way to, to recognize it, to name it, to acknowledge it. And if you also don't have community around you to talk about it, like, this is what I'm going through. What are you like? You know, are we? It's like, no, you're not crazy. Like to not have some of that feedback, it can lead to a number of different kinds of outcomes. But I think that that's really where it starts for immigrant families, whether it's your grandparents, I mean, whomever, you know, had come first, there is an element of that to their experience. And it remains, it remains because it it hasn't been acknowledged you know, it just, it almost kind of like lingers there, sort of like a phantom. And so I think that by the time that like a care conversation, an end of life conversation needs to occur, which also, you know, in our death phobic society gets pushed forward, gets pushed forward, the combination of, again, those kinds of factors just can really lead to a, a very challenging situation. What are the things about care conversations, end of life conversations? They, they can be challenging really just again because of what we're trying to address. But the other component of it is what is the relationship underlying that may be present that may either be facilitating having that conversation or not and actually may be acting as something of a barrier. These kinds of conversations about care, about end of life, these are intimate. These are intimate conversations. In terms of the relationship that's required to support having that conversation, it has to be something of an intimate relationship. And I think that this, like, I wish that this is something that, that people could understand a bit better is that it's a shift. It's a shift in your relationship toward this deeper kind of, you know, intimacy, if your goal is to have these kinds of conversations, and that if you're not already in a position where perhaps the runway, you know, to shift into that has already been, you know, well laid out, or perhaps started, then you're going to have some work to do. It's not just a function of like, hey, let's talk about advanced care planning right now. And I do think that there's a misperception that uh, that has been occurring and particularly, I think, like in the light of COVID, that, you know, advanced care planning has come much, much more into the fore. It's kind of like, all right, you know, get this paperwork done and you're going to have like a good depth. Everything's checked, like all the boxes are checked and whatnot. It's like, it's not quite that easy. 
Yes, taking care of various logistics, paperwork, advanced care planning, wills, funeral planning, all of the kinds of concrete things, absolutely important. But in terms of having, again, some of those conversations that may have to do with those logistics, but also, you know, around wishes, it requires shifting toward a different kind of intimate relationship to have those kinds of conversations about really any of that. Are there ways that you coach people to start building that type of relationship so they can have those conversations? Yeah. Um, I mean, one of our workshops is how to talk to your immigrant parents about death, getting started. You know, we we do facilitate like an, an exploration and we basically start with this notion of it's not really so much again about that conversation. It's about a relationship and it's about, you know, whomever are are the stakeholders in that relationship. For any individual, we think that it's important to be able to define within this relationship, who are you? What is your role? Is that a role that you have taken on? Is that a role that you've been given? How do you feel about that role? Do you want to keep doing it? Um, So understanding that. And then also understanding what do you get out of this relationship? What do you put into it? How do you feel about that? Do you want it to continue in that way? Really trying to understand like an individual goal as part of that relationship to be able to define that as well as, you know, one might be able to. I think from there, it's, it's possible to have a greater level of clarity about what is the direction that I really want to go into with this. In terms of having conversations about care, end of life, whatnot, what do I want to bring to it? What do I want to get out of it? How am I going to start to shift based on how I'm, I'm defining that? And without that clarity, I think it's easy to default to just this notion of, well, let's just have a conversation. Let's just talk about end of life. And I think that if it's approached that way, kind of like, well, I want to talk about it. We have to talk about it, but no one else wants to talk about it. Then you're at an impasse. You know, you're, you're really kind of leapfrogging over a lot of things that have to happen. Well, you mentioned earlier that, you know, having end of life conversations, care conversations are intimate conversations, but what you just talked about made it even way more intimate <laughs> in terms of acknowledge, like really delving into like, what is the role that we play in our family? What role do we want to continue to play? Yeah, well, and, you know, I think, too, that we're such a time-pressed society. We're looking for quick fixes. You know, intimacy is not a quick fix. It, it takes time. It takes time to build. And one of, the, one of the goals for MESO as well is we recognize that it takes time, that our goal is to really encourage um, starting like further upstream, not, necess- not necessarily, you know, like when we're gathered around the deathbed. Like, I think there's also this like kind of Hollywood version where everyone believes it. like, you know, we're going to have this like sort of maybe kumbaya moment where everyone is gathered around whomever is in, you know, like the bed, they're like on their way out. And we're going to have these like big, meaningful, forgiving conversations or whatnot right then. And it's all going to be okay. It does not happen like that. <laughs> I mean, that, that's Hollywood. And so, you know, to, to sort of like break that perception, we have 
in some ways we have, uh, if we can, if we can harness time as a resource and again, start building that relationship, if it hasn't already, you know, had a runway built, then it is, it is possible, but it does take time. Tita, are there ways in which your experience with your parents at the end of their lives has changed or shaped in some way how you are a parent? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So I have teenagers. When my parents died, they were, well, I mean, they were clearly, they were younger. I'm trying to figure that out now. But I think that they were, in yeah, high school as well as middle school at that point. One of the things that I was really mindful of in terms of my bereavement, my expression of it, like with my kids, was, again, I gave myself permission. I was like, just let it all hang out. Don't hide. If there's anyone who needs to see, like, what grieving looks like, mourning looks like, I want that to be my kids. And I do. I think that kids, I think kids are just extraordinary. I think that they're smarter than adults, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My kids, they, like, if I would really start crying, like, in the middle of, like, wherever, they'd they'd, come over and they'd just give me a hug. Or they just put, like, their hand on my arm. Or just, you know, just something. Like, so intuitive. And I just, uh, I just love that about them. In terms of, you know, really looking at the important relationships in my life after my parents have died, and where do I want to find my own grounding? And I, I do believe, like, the necessity of finding grounding as a parent. But really looking at the, yeah, like, the importance and the value uh, of, of my relationship with my kids. It's easier for me to describe, particularly with my older one, because he's now a college freshman. In terms of, you know, all of like the swirl of like his senior year, that he could have a senior year. There could be like an in-person prom, that there's actually, you know, in-person classes. Uh, there's going to be like an actual graduation. Like all of that, you know, coming out of COVID was such a joy and such a relief. But at the same time, like as a parent, he gets like his college acceptance letter. So as, as a mother thinking about, you know, what are those next steps? I know for me, it was really about consciously trying to build like this intention into the transition to a, a new phase of our relationship that he's not in the house anymore. He is going to be dealing with more independence and like all of those kinds of, you know, absolutely like age appropriate things. But how do we continue to connect? How do we build on the relationship, you know, that we've already had and just being very mindful and intentional about that. And I do think that for me, that that, that was a direct result of, of losing my parents of really kind of getting like that wake up call. This not might not make much sense, but as you were sharing that piece, I was thinking, you know, we say end of life conversations or care conversations. And really what you're talking about is how do we have life to life conversations for as long as that life mm-hmm. is still happening? Of like, mm-hmm. how do we build and continue to build and, and shift and change our relationships, but stay in relationship as we approach the end of life? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. One of the things I feel that I've learned about um, grief, uh, and it's it's really a, I think more of like, yeah, like an observation about life is that we're in such a time, a time-pressed society and, and, and whatnot. Everything has to be now, 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 now. So we default to like reduction, not necessarily simplicity, that's different, but like reduction. And reduction, you know, flattens things out. What I mean by that is we, we, we end up in more situations where things have to be this or that, black or white, either or. And our capacity to hold more than that, we have the capacity to hold more than that. So for me, I'm much more, much more cognizant of the and, black and white this and that, like the and where you have to hold both. I think in terms of realizing with grief that with grief, there can also be joy. And in terms of joy, do I appreciate it as much, quite frankly, if there's not also that grief, you know, to like throw like a shimmering light on like what that joy is. So joy and grief, grief and joy you know, to be moving forward in life with that, I think is, is just a much more holistic approach. Well, Tita, as we come to the end of our conversation, speaking of end of things, is there anything last thing you want our listeners to know, either about your work with Meso or about cultural bereavement or just any last thing you feel like you didn't get a chance to say that you want people to know? Um. Yeah, thank you for that opportunity. I think I just really like to bring it back to cultural bereavement because that's really the focus of Mesa's work for this year. In terms of it, you know, we, we there is a term, so we can name it, we can recognize it, we can acknowledge it. But where the magic of it can come is that as an individual, you know, as we grieve, as we mourn, I mean, anything, like you do that as an individual, but as that individual, I believe you can only go so far. And then I believe that to then engage with community and hear the stories of other people allows me to reflect on my own experience and to learn, to learn more from my own experience, to learn from their experience and to kind of have this interaction, this dialogue um, where it can all, you know, it can like we can grow together. And so when it comes to cultural bereavement, you know, and the fact that it has been a disenfranchised grief, like forever, I feel strongly that we need to break that silence. So in terms of like, what can people perhaps do? It's, it's again, it's like, learn more about like your history or your history, and connect with culture in, in whatever ways that feel resonant, but then also either find or build a community where like the silences the silence will not prevail. I'm left with this idea of, you know, grieving from cultural loss, cultural bereavement, and the importance of doing that in community, which in a sense builds culture. Yeah, we can change it. We can shift. Well, in deep appreciation for the work that you are doing through Meso to shift this. And uh, I always put things in the show notes, but anything quick you want listeners to know of where to find you uh, and the work that you're doing? Uh, yes, our website is mesocommunity.com. Uh, we are on Facebook as well as Instagram, and our handle is 
at Meso Community. And listeners, always, it's in the show notes, but if you want to quickly head there now, please do. And Tita, again, you know, gratitude for your time today, for the work that you're doing, for everything that you shared with me and with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. And listeners out there, each and every time I say the same thing, but thank you for being part of the show, for making it mean something, for, you know, sharing an episode with a friend or a family member that you think might be interested in what we're talking about here. And if there's things you want us to be talking about that we're not talking about, please reach out to me. You can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot which is also the website for Dougie Center where you can find information about our local programming, all of our free downloadable uh, tip sheets, activity sheets, other resources, and each and every episode of Grief Out Loud. Our podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Stephan Endowment Fund. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time.